Yeah. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Um, well, welcome to everyone here in our, the room. Welcome to everybody who's downstairs in our overflow room. We're using that uh, for the first time this morning, and we're grateful for those folks who are down there. And welcome, of course, to everyone who's uh, watching online. Uh, I just want to begin uh, in prayer, and in particular, uh, we've been asked to pray um, for a person who's very special to us, who's part of this uh, family. Uh, Sheila Martin has asked that we pray for her. She's going uh, in to uh, get some medical uh, testing and treatment, um, and she needs to be sure that um, what she has has not spread to the lymph nodes, correct? Well, I know they're going to do a partial mastectomy, and she's also praying that they find out that uh, cancer hasn't spread to the lymph nodes. So please keep her in prayer, and as we uh, open in the service, we're going to pray for her in particular right now. Um, and so, Father, we just thank you. We thank you that no matter what's going on around us, no matter what's going on in our own lives, that you are with us, that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are our source of joy and peace and comfort that you are a source of healing. And so may Sheila and may all of us who need your special touch feel that this morning. Lord, we come here this morning expecting. We come here this morning in need of you. We come here this morning and we ask that you create in us a desire in our heart to be changed. That we, that we not want to leave here the same way we came in. Father, meet us in this place and have your way. We ask for your blessing on the word, on the worship this morning. Lord, we just love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning is Communion Sunday, and we know that that's a time when we remember the sacrifice of Christ. We reflect on his life, on his death, on his resurrection. And we look closely at what it means for us today as his bride, the church. And so as individuals and as a community, we remember our mandate to go and make disciples. And so this morning I come to you with an urgency. It's in my spirit and it's in my bones. I mentioned this morning to the team, I've probably preached 700 sermons and I can count on one hand. The amount of time I've put this much time and energy, or I've had this much, just this much of a burden from the Lord to preach a sermon. I know that I've said before that, you know, this is the most important sermon I'm going to preach, and, and, I, and I believe that because it's true, because God makes it true. And so I believe that about this word this morning, that in many ways, that God is going to speak to us as his church in a special way. I'm grateful this morning that despite myself, God is using me here in this place. And I believe that after much prayer and reflection that this is a message that certainly I needed to hear. That this message needed to wound me that it needed to challenge me, that it needed to make me feel uncomfortable. 
And I know that might not sound exciting to some of you, though at this point, if you keep coming, you might be a glutton for punishment. But seriously, the gospel message is always good news. It's always encouraging. But God needs to show us where change is needed so that tomorrow we can grow closer to imitating Christ than today. That is always and forever will be the goal of a Christian. And as such, that will always be the goal of our preaching here at South Coast. Ministry isn't about how many people you can draw into a room. It's about how many people you can bring to Jesus. And so what I'm going to share with you this morning forms my entire philosophy of ministry. I'm going to talk about the way I think we got to do church. I'm going to define our overall vision for this ministry. And I pray that God confirms in our spirits and that he prompts and lead us in this regard. I'm going to provide sort of an overview. And in the coming weeks, we're going to go deeper. We're not going to delve. No more delving. My wife and daughter, they make fun of me. It's nice to see that they pay attention when I preach. You know, they always said, Dad, use the word delve all the time. So we're not going to delve. We're going to dive, though. Okay? We're going to go deeper. Any, anything we preach can and should be challenged if it's deemed unbiblical. So not only do you have the freedom, but you have the mandate to oppose non-biblical teaching. On the other hand, if you are confronted with biblical truth, you have a decision to make. You can apply it or you can ignore it. And I tell you this, we ignore the Bible's instruction at our own great peril. I'm going to be sharing a lot of material from articles and books that I've been reading. There'll be a lot of information, but it's entirely formed from scriptural foundation. And so my prayer this morning is that we would reflect and consider that as we prepare for communion, we take an honest look at our spiritual lives. We examine ourselves as Paul implores us. I want us to repent together and then commit together to live effective lives for Christ. Amen? Please stand as we transition to worship. Lord, again, we just welcome you in this place. Help, up to, help us to worship you with abandon. To close our eyes, to stand, to sit, to open our eyes, to shout out. To be uninhibited in our praises of you. Father, you've given us the freedom to do that, and we worship you in spirit and in truth now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm really excited to hear what God has given Pastor Brian. I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot of hype. These songs, you know, they just talk about the greatness of God and the love of God. And what he's done for us. And so as we're hearing those hard truths, as we're swallowing that jagged pill, um, I hope that we remember that everything God says to us that hurts is from love. Um, he disciples, uh, he disciplines those who love who he loves. And that's us. Amen. turned into wine and open the eyes of the blind there's no one like you none like you into the darkness 
Into the darkness we shine And out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you Praise you God No, none like you Our God is greater Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God, oh, lift him up, give him praise, he is worthy, there's none like him, amen, into the darkness we shine, into the darkness we shine, praise God, and out of the ashes we rise, there's no one like you. Lord, none like you. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God, oh, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healing, awesome in power. Our God, our God, oh, If our God is for us, and if our God is for us, then what could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, what could stand against? And if our God is for us, what could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, what could stand against? Praise you, God. What could stand against? Our God is greater. We praise you, Lord. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, and our God, oh, our God is greater, our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer. Awesome in power, our God, our God, oh, 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 lift him up, give him glory, praise his name, hallelujah, Jesus, we love God, inhabit this place, be here among us, receive this praise, God. sin, who knew no sin, that we might become 
His righteousness, praise Him. He humbled Himself and He carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah. Praise Him. Oh, the name above all names. Blessed Redeemer. Blessed Reed. 
rescue for sinners, hold the ransom from heaven, Lord Jesus Messiah, Lord Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation. Praise you. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Oh, let mercy fall on me. And everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior. Praise you, God. You're the hope of the nation. My God is mighty to save, he is mighty to save, forever author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave, Jesus conquered the grave. conquer the grave for all of us. Death has no hold. Praise you, Jesus. So take me as you find me with all my fears and failures. Oh, Lord, lift my life again. I give my life to follow everything I believe in. Now I surrender. Yes, I surrender, oh, Savior. He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Shine your light. Praise you, God. Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. Jesus, 
shine your light and let the whole world sing. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Praise you, God. There's nothing you can do. This is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. Sing this from your heart. All I have. Within me, I give you praise, and all that I adore is in you. give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake. Oh Lord, have your way in me. Praise you, God. Have your way in us this morning, God. Mold us and shape us, God, how you want us, how you intended us for to be. This is my desire. This is my desire to honor you. Praise you, God. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. I worship you all I have within me I give you praise and all that I adore is in I give you my soul, Lord, I live for you alone, every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, oh, Lord, have your way in me, Lord, I give you my heart. 
give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake. Oh Lord, have your way in me. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Lord, we again just come before you this morning and we ask that you help us to be present and focused, that you remove the distraction. Lord, we just, we just sang the words, Lord, I give you my heart, and that's what you want. That's all you've ever wanted all along. Let those not just be empty words that we just sang. But let us leave here renewed and committed to give you our hearts. To say, Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I had to put in my notes, my mother-in-law said, sometimes I seems like I'm yelling at people. And like I'm a Teen Challenge guy, so that's kind of the way we got preached to for a minute. You know what I'm saying? But... Uh, don't, don't confuse my volume for anger, it's enthusiasm and excitement, and so I'm going to try not to yell at you, uh, but if I get a little excited, you know, that's why. I'm certainly not uh, upset. So I want to start this morning with a question. This is one of those sermons, and you know, I don't, I'm not going to break it up. I don't know how long it's going to go. I'm, we won't be here for, you know, hours, but... I'm not going to break it up. It's important enough that we're going to get through it today. As long as it takes, we're going to get through it today because this is a word that we need to hear, church. Amen? And, uh, and so I want to start with a question, not a rhetorical question. It's a very important question. And I think to a large degree, the way we answer this question will, our, will determine our posture or our approach to living as a Christian in this world. You know, we have signs to be and make disciples. We talk about to be and make disciples. And do we stop and ask ourselves enough, am I being and making disciples? So the question is this. Do you see yourself primarily, primarily doing battle fighting against culture? Or do you see yourself primarily as fighting for culture? Are you trying to defeat or are you trying to rescue? Because I want us to ask and, and really consider if a warlike posture is the proper response to an increasingly anti Christian society. I suggest, in fact, that we've given up the high ground, that we've compromised our message and our integrity, and we are losing the battle for the hearts and minds of the next generations. Fighting against someone or fighting for them, those are entirely different attitudes. 
Those questions, whether you've asked them, you know, whether you've actually asked them or whether you, you know, subconsciously, you know, maybe thought about them, those will define how you live as a Christian in the world. The way you see your role as an ambassador for Jesus. Are we at war with someone or are we at war for someone? The enemy wants us divided and disconnected from our creator, from creation, from each other. And we cannot minister to people when they perceive that we are, or in many cases we actually are, when they either think we are or we actually are trying to fight them. And hopefully I mean that in a figurative way. And despite how biblical your theology or doctrine may be intellectually, If practically the outflow of that theology is to demean and wound those we are called to help, then you've missed and I've missed a critical and profound truth. I titled this message, Wisdom from Above, and James writes in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, Who is wise and understanding among you? I kind of feel like right away I kind of go like that, right? I mean, let's be honest. I am, James. I mean, I think. By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Boy, do I love that expression. Because real wisdom has to be accompanied by meekness. Or it's arrogant. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Do not boast. Do not make it about you. And in your arrogance and in your method, demean and belittle the truth, the message. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. But it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. He's talking to believers, folks. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy. Am I full of mercy? It's full of good fruits, it's impartial, it's sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are all praying for a harvest of righteousness in our own lives, in the lives of our church. So the question we have to ask is, does our approach to ministry represent the wisdom that comes down from above or the wisdom that is of the world? earthly and unspiritual and demonic. Listen to me closely. We are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. We are at war for the world in the the spiritual sense. Now I'm quoting here. The problem with the culture war approach is not that it rightly discerns opposition from the world. It's correct. The gospel is opposed to the system of the world. The kingdom of God is always separate and distinct. 
It is above and beyond, and as such, it is opposed to worldly things. It is different. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? The problem isn't our mandate. It's our method. It's our chosen model of response. And by embracing the culture war paradigm, many Christians adopt, likely inadvertently, an all's fair and love and war perspective. And in war, you don't turn the other cheek as Jesus commanded us. You strike back as hard or harder than your opponent because that's how wars are won. And so we in the church employ battle tactics we normally would not find defensible. We express outrage over, over every new infraction we see in the news or in social media. Forgetting that the Bible says we are neither to give in so easily to anger, nor to imitate the evils of culture, outrage culture, cancel culture, victim culture. I get it. Third, uh, third John 11, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. We fight and quarrel with our opponents, forgetting that such skirmishes often stem from selfish motives. James 4.1, what's the root of it all? What are we really trying to do? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. 2 Timothy 2. So we mock those in opposition to us. We use the popular rhetoric of sarcastic memes, of name-calling, of condescending language. I'm guilty. You guys know if you're on my thread, I got, some, I got a meme ministry happening. And then, you know, most of the time it's light humor, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just demeaning and belittling. Sometimes it's not Christ-like at all. This isn't like every time I preach. This isn't me preaching to you. This is God's word preaching to his church. Forgetting that we're called to communicate with gentleness and respect in 1 Peter 3.15. To walk in wisdom toward outsiders by letting our speech always be gracious. Gracious, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. I'll give you the notes. I'll email anybody the notes, and you can check every scripture and everything I'm saying. And if anything I'm saying is off, please correct me. Because I want to learn and grow, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I think. My opinion is not important. God's word's important. And that's what I'm always going to preach to you. And I don't care if you leave here and you hate me for a minute. I don't care if you hate me for your lifetime. If you hear the truth. In short, culture warriors wrestle with others in a way that's antithetical to ways of scriptural teaching. And here's the thing. Ephesians 6.12, for we did not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Yeah, we're fighting a battle against sin, not against sinners. And you know what that primary battle should be fought? The sin in our own lives. Let's start there. Or as Jesus himself put it before, Pilate's accusations, John 18, starting in verse 36. 
Pilate's accusing Jesus, saying, you know, they say you're a king. What do you have to say for yourself, Jesus? I mean, what's your response to this? These people, they're charging you, they're the religious system. They say you're going around telling everybody you're a king. Jesus didn't say, yes, I am, Pilate, and I'm going to destroy you right now. Someday, this is what Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus is saying, if my kingdom was in the world, if I came in power like I will someday, if I came in judgment like I will someday, then my servants would have fought and overthrown you. But right now, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm ushering in a different kingdom. So Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Listen. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is saying, the reason I came right now is to bear witness to the truth. And my life and my teaching and my testimony and everything I'm doing. And then Pilate looked at him and said, what is truth? I love that. I don't want to get too far off track. But man, can you think of the irony there? Truth embodied stands before him and Pilate doesn't recognize it because he's spiritually blind. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. There's only one truth that sets people free. There is only one truth that brings life and light where there is death and darkness a question for you. Anyone here ever argue anyone into the kingdom? Now, I'm not saying you don't discuss. I'm not, I mean, I can debate with the, with the best of them, and I love that stuff. And sometimes, you know, that's apologetics. People have questions about God. That's not what I'm talking about. Anybody win anyone over with your name calling? Your Facebook post ever win somebody over to your side? You think our political leaders are going to redeem culture? You think if we just got the right laws passed that people would behave morally? Do we have more confidence in politics than in Christ? Think for a minute if you could stack the deck and put your person in every single position of power in the whole country. You get to pick. Everything, every politician, local up to national, judges, Supreme Court, you stack the whole thing. Do you think that that's going to change the heart of man? What is your hope in to change the world? I'm not saying we don't engage in civil discourse. I'm not saying we don't vote. We don't stand up for what we believe. That's not at all what I'm saying. We should do those things. But think of it like this. If somebody stands across the street from you shouting at you, you can shout back. Or you can walk away and look for a more productive avenue of influence. What I am saying is understand the reality of the battle. If it's political or cultural, we lost. It's over. We find the idea of conversion by sword atrocious, yet we think we can belittle and berate people into the kingdom. You see, we're just trying to change minds. 
but Jesus alone can change hearts. Ours is a spiritual war. In fact, our own marching orders come from our own former enemy. Because scripture says that, right? It said in Colossians 1.21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies of your minds because of your evil behavior. So once we were God's enemies, and what did God do for his enemies? He sent his son. He sent his son. Jesus who reconciled us to himself by shedding by the shedding of blood, not ours. Because that would have been just retribution. That would have been appropriate. But in his gracious propitiation, that word just means in his gracious atonement, in his sacrifice, it means a full sacrifice that entirely satisfies our debt. Jesus alone restores our standing before God. That's what God did for his enemies. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? You want justice? God should destroy us. Tough to hear, right? That would be justice. But instead, he offers us, us life through his son. Now, it seems to me that so many Christians are either so lukewarm and biblically illiterate, and I don't use that term derisively, I mean not knowing the word of God at all, that they are more shaped by culture and the world than by God. They've become worldly Christians, they've become materialists, and ultimately they are ineffective and devoid of any real spiritual life. Or there are those who are so actively and desperately fighting a cultural battle in the flesh that any and all tactics have become acceptable. I want to read something to you that has a very practical application for your personal, emotional, and spiritual health. For my personal, emotional, and spiritual health, and as a result, our ministry. Everyone knows about my love-hate relationship with social media, right? You've heard about that a couple times, maybe. And we joke about it, but it's not because I'm indecisive. The, the, you know, step away from Facebook, you know, it's not because I'm indecisive. It's not because I'm not thoughtful. It's certainly not because I want attention. That's a whole other sermon for another day. Some of you rather have likes from the masses than likes from Jesus, Amen. I want to be light. I want to influence people for Jesus. But here's the cold, hard fact. And this, is, this isn't my opinion. This is research. It's been documented and verified. You can look it up. Multiple studies, multiple sources. It's indisputable. This is from a guy named Chris Martin. Chris Martin is the manager of social media at Lifeway Christian Resources. This is a guy who uses social media for a ministry for a living. And he's right, and we ought to consider this truth very, very carefully because it is most definitely impacting our spiritual and relational health. Here's this quote. I have changed my mind away from thinking social media platforms are neutral tools. As I have done more and more research about the inner workings of social media platforms and the motives with which they have been created and are perpetrated, 
Just recently, the World's Wall Street Journal has reported, and this is one of many studies, that Facebook ignored internal research search that proves its algorithms exploit the human's brain's attractive... Uh, let me stop. Hold on. Getting all excited. Facebook ignored internal research that proved its algorithms exploit the human brain's attraction to divisiveness. Facebook, which owns Instagram and WhatsApp, recognized the divisiveness of its own algorithms. They understood it. They saw it. It was clear as, as night and day. And they shelved the research because they were afraid if they changed the algorithms to be less divisive, it would hurt the actual engagement and ultimately their revenue. And so he goes on to say this, as I have read and studied the inner, inner workings of social media platforms more over the years, I have come to the realization that most of these platforms, with Facebook being the most grievous, routinely make decisions that support revenues to the detriment of users. These platforms are designed to make us want to engage content, even if it's content that makes us sad or angry. And he concludes by saying, I think all of us, because of sin, have a default setting to use social media in sinful ways. So I think we are primarily to blame for the misuses of social media. But it has become clear to me that the platforms themselves are acting as stumbling blocks and they are not simply neutral tools that we are using poorly. You ever wonder why you find yourself, you know, and you know, you get to the point now, I, I don't say things anymore, or I don't post things, I just think them all. You know, you're in there and you're like, man, I want to respond to that, man. I, you ever wonder why the stuff that's negative or, every, I mean, you, you look at your phone for a few hours, then you just feel bad. Right? Is it just me? Like, I want to take my smartphone, I want to throw it away. People think that Amish are opposed to technology, but that's not true. They use certain technological tools. Here's what guides them before they use something in their community. Will it bring them closer to God and closer to each other? They don't view all technology as evil, and they are just suspicious of things that society tells them they need. Now, I'm not saying their interpretation is correct, but I'm saying that we would do well to ask the same question about not just our technology, but the way we live our entire lives. We should be suspicious of advertising and of news media and of the social media platform that's all profit-driven. That doesn't have our best interest at heart. That tells us all the stuff we, you know, we can't live without. Listen, I get it. I love to connect with folks. It's fun to post things, pictures, see other people's posts. I've considered it all. But we are being manipulated. And it's not making us better people. I think the jury's out, and for the large majority of people, Facebook does more harm than good. It either gives us a false sense of reality and relationship where we're substituting virtual interaction for time spent with family and friends, or it's causing us to dig into our side of things and to take up arms, and you can justify it all you want, and you can try to say that when you use it, it doesn't look like that, and I'm not here to tell you what to do or to judge you. I'm just here to say, take an honest look, because I've told myself the same things, and I was lying to myself.
I think that for most of us, we are deluding ourselves and our lives, our relationships, and our ministries would be much better if we disconnected, if not entirely, certainly for a season. If I asked you right now to give up Facebook for 30 days to not check it at all, how many of you would have real trouble doing that? I suspect too many. Now, some of you don't use social media, and that's great. I would say don't start. That would be my advice. I'm convinced entirely the harm outweighs the benefit. I've been involved with technology my whole life. I'm a tech geek. I knew about Facebook when it was only on college campuses, when it was, it was just a thing in college. I've seen from the very beginning. Now, this isn't about technology or social media per se. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm preaching about. I'm preaching about the nature of relating to each other and the world around us. And the constant connectedness of our smartphones makes the news bombard us. Oftentimes it's inaccurate entirely. It's clickbait. It simply increases a divide. It reinforces our existing views on the world the way it's programmed to. Because it's about making money, not delivering information. And the reason I'm discussing the virtual world and technology so much is because it has been the single biggest force of change and the way we relate to another in human history. More than the Pony Express and delivering mail and newspapers and print and the telephone. The amount of information we have is staggering. The amount of inaccurate information we have is staggering. And it's making us more dysfunctional. And so again, this isn't about, you might be here and be like, social media, I don't have social media, I don't have, what. it's not about that. It's about our relationships. It's about effectively our, our witnessing for the gospel. The church is called to exist as an oasis in the desert of a world filled with self-centeredness and pain and anger. And the church itself seems at times filled with that same self-centeredness and anger. And we are losing. We are losing the next generation. And I know that all of our heart breaks for that. I know it does. Jonathan Edwards asked this, Do we engage one who opposes us without angry reflection or contemptuous language? Do we seek his good rather than his hurt? Do we seek to deliver him from the calamity in which he has fallen or to be even with him for the injury he has brought us? Are we trying to win arguments, get even, or save souls? Remember, we are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. If you take away one thing, take away that. And I think to engage with culture in a militant and hostile manner is to forsake our role as ambassadors. It trades our diplomatic visas for military dog tags. It trades the armor of God for the fig leaves of human striving. It's a capitulation to earthly wisdom. Yes, it's attempting to fight for the kingdom of God, but it's using the world's terms. And we lose our witness when we do that. Listen, the culture war is over. Virtue has lost. 
if we ever were a Christian nation, if there were such a thing, we are by all accounts now a post-Christian nation. And listen to me, that could be the best thing that's ever happened to the church. Because I'll make the case for you that historically throughout the church, when there was a marginally Christian ruler and power, and when people were considered culturally Christian, there was such a vague superficial spirituality to the masses as to be no faith at all. I'll make the case historically for all this stuff. None of this is my opinion. When a conquering power would come in, the masses would simply convert to that religion. When Christianity is the dominant religion in a culture and it costs nothing to claim Christ, spiritual maturity and discipline decrease. I'm going to say that again. When Christianity is the dominant religion in a culture, it costs nothing to claim Christ. Everybody you see says they're Christian. Then spiritual maturity and discipline decrease. You see, often we're so worried about having other people align with our views on the surface and identify themselves as Christian that we haven't even stopped and asked ourselves whether we're Christian. Do we even know what that means anymore, church? To claim to follow Jesus? I mean, is it showing up at the right events? Is it saying the right things? Is it having the right understanding? Is it writing the right checks? Or in many cases, even not showing up the right things. Because I've heard people say illogical stuff, entirely unbiblical stuff. Like, I love God, I just don't need to go to church. The New Testament was written to churches, right? Communities of believers that were living out their faith. Do we miss that part? Does following Jesus meaning picking and choosing what rules to follow and which ones to ignore and hoping at the end of the day that we're following more than we ignore? I pray to God that Jesus brings you to the end of yourself. That's my prayer. I wish, I wish that for you with all my heart and with all my soul. And the reason why is because only there will you really find him. Only in the midst of your own brokenness over your own condition and your own need for forgiveness, will you really find Jesus? And forgiveness and healing and wholeness and meaning and purpose. And if you've never given yourself over to Jesus, you're just playing church. So I beg you, you can, you can be mad at me all you want, but I pray for conviction I'm convicted. Don't leave here today. I beg you, don't leave this place without throwing your life into the care of Jesus. And if you are here and you're broken, if you're ready to surrender control of your life to Jesus, then he brought you here to this moment right now. And he alone, not me, not South Coast Church, he alone is asking you, to come home, to make your home with him, to find rest. Following Jesus has to mean we're not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have bought, been bought with a price. 
Therefore, glorify God. Romans 8, 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Some people, I don't know if your Bible says suggestion there. I don't know if we've got to go to the Greek for that. Is that advice? Yeah, a little asterisk. Only if you feel like it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. We have a mandate. But it's not to the flesh. It's not to live the way you think you should and your flesh tells you you should and the world tells you you should. That's not your mandate. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. See, somehow we've become convinced that this is radical Christianity. This isn't radical Christianity. This is just actual Christianity. We cannot keep living for ourselves and pretend that we are Christians in any sense of the word. Jesus makes clear that we're called to live for him. And if you're sitting here and you have no desire to live for Jesus, ask him to change you from within. Submit your life to him and ask him to do a work in you because only he can do it. I can't do it. I like to think I'm fairly articulate, but I'm not that articulate. I can't. I don't have that power. The only power I have standing up here is the power of the word of God and the spirit of God. That's it. Whether you realize it or not, you're just a gatekeeper. You're a caretaker. You're a steward. Whatever time and resources God's given you, your stuff is not your own. Your time on earth, your very life, it belongs to him. You just get to decide where to deploy your time and your resources, but it's not yours. And someday, it'll be gone. All your stuff will be gone, life on this earth, that's it. I've, I don't know how many funerals I've done over the time I've been a pastor, but young, old, expected, unexpected, you don't know what tomorrow brings. You might sit here and say, well, you know, maybe someday, Pastor Brian, I'm going to, you know, try to do some of this stuff in my life. You don't know if you have someday. You don't know if you have tomorrow. I don't know if I have tomorrow. Do you belong to Jesus, or are you just living for yourself, competing with a world full of people living for themselves? You've heard me say that, the struggle is the demarcation line in Christianity. It separates. When times are tough, where do we turn? Who will save us from ourselves? I said last week that difficulty is a unique opportunity for intimacy with Christ. Difficulty is a unique opportunity for intimacy with Christ. And intimacy with Christ must be the basis for all our ministry. If intimacy with Jesus isn't the basis for your ministry, you're simply religious ideologues. And Jesus, and you're going to be like, well, Jesus, you know, we, 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 you know, we cast out demons in your name, and I had the t-shirt, I went to the youth camp, Jesus, I, I had the bumper sticker, Jesus, I wore my cross, I said the name Jesus everywhere I went, and he's going to say, I, I never knew you. The goal of your life wasn't intimacy with me. What I'm sharing this morning is the result of countless prayers, of thoughts, of biblical study, of readings. This, this, is, this is all of it. 
So it's more than just a sermon. This is a biblical manifesto for effective Christian community. This is the DNA of South Coast Church. It's the heart of how I see our engagement and influence with the world. I'm not suggesting a radical new way to live as Christians. I'm suggesting a return to the original way to live as Christians. A renewed spiritual life that overflows in every aspect in our lives. Not an ideological club to belong to. That's why I believe this can be the best thing to ever happen to the church. America has a long time lived off of its thin Christian veneer and that is finally being stripped away by the combination of mass consumer capitalism and liberal individualism. So every single church in America must now ask ourselves if we've been compromised so much by the world that we've compromised our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Is the Christianity that we've been living out in our families, in our churches, in our communities, is, is it a means of a deeper conversion? Or does it, like I read, function as a vaccination against taking faith with the seriousness the gospel demands? Does it lull us into a false sense of security because we can stamp the name Christian on our lives and then live as though it has no meaning at all? Listen, we got to do better, church. There's a reason our children are leaving the church. If the current trend continues, the Western church will be impotent in a generation or two. Either it will exist on life support or it will have become, like so many churches already, indistinguishable from the culture. Many of the churches today that do stay open have been so hollowed out by secularism to the point that the Christianity taught is devoid of power and devoid of life. Back in 2005, sociologist Christian Smith and Melinda Denton examined the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers from a wide variety of backgrounds. This is from those who had any spiritual sense at all. I think now they say that uh, well over 30% of, 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 uh, of young people in their 20s and under have absolutely no religious interest, affiliation, spirituality at all. There used to be a vague spirituality. Now people just, it's not even, it's, not even in their radar. The concepts of sin is so foreign. And this was back in 2005. And they interview young people that have, a, a, that have a, some spiritual interest. This is what they found. That they've almost entirely converted to emotivism. That's an ethical theory that regards ethical and value judgments as simply expressions of feelings or attitudes. In other words, their decisions are based entirely on what one feels or thinks or prefers with little to no regard at all with anything other than their ultimate individual perceived happiness. What they found was that in most cases, teenagers who are spiritual, who are spiritual they adhere to a mushy pseudo-religion that they've termed moralistic therapeutic deism. Just kind of a phrase, moralistic, we understand, tries to ground itself with some morality. Therapeutic, 
means primarily it's aimed at making you feel better. And deism is just a belief in an impersonal God. Doesn't really intervene in the universe. Doesn't really demand anything. Kind of created everything and then backed away and said, have at it. So what they found is that these, these young people, that their pseudo-religion, that's what it looks like. And these are the five basic tenets. A God exists who created and orders the world, and he watches over human life, but he's not really involved with me intimately. He wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible mostly, but also other religions. So the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life except when you need him to resolve a problem and good people go to heaven when they die. Now, it'd be nice if I could say, well, you know, that's the, the young, young, young people and teenagers of today and, you know, that's how they feel and we could all just sit and go, boy, how do they, man, how, the, how do they get to that point? I mean, that's, you know why that most of the teenagers today, that that's their view of spirituality? Because many adults in the church today, that's their view of spirituality. And I say this not accusatory, but lovingly question your salvation. And I don't mean if you've put your faith in Jesus. Whether I mean, have you ever once really put your faith in Jesus? Because you can't inherit... I don't care if you grew up in a Christian household. I don't care how many times you went to church. I don't care how many times you read your Bible. You don't just inherit somebody else's faith. You might have grown up in the church. You're still going to make a decision for Jesus. Are we so comfortable with a pseudo-faith that it's hardly connected to actual historic Christianity at all? An empty faith that's mostly about improving our self-esteem, our subjective happiness, about trying to get along where all our relationships are so superficial as not to really be relationships at all because we want to get along with everybody. And we've decided that that's, you know, the path of least resistance is the most loving. It's not. It's antithetical to that. Or you simply avoid anyone who doesn't fit in your particular mold. Because this sort of deism has little to do with the Christianity of Scripture and tradition. That one that teaches repentance, self-sacrificial love, purity of heart, that commends suffering, the way of the cross as a pathway to God. Those superficially Christian this deism is the natural religion of a culture that worships the self and that worships its own comfort. Now make no mistake, I fully understand God will continue to build his church. There's just no guarantee that I'll be in the West. Of course, true believers will exist throughout the world, but the church in the West as an institution is in grave danger. And if you somehow don't see that, I would invite you to study. Because very serious scholars and pastors and theologians, Christian people who've been looking at this stuff for years, recognize the reality. In 2012, Pope Benedict said, The spiritual crisis overtaking the West is the most serious, serious crisis since the fall of the Roman Empire near the end of the 5th century. That in 1,500 years of the history of the church, we got to wake up. we got to be careful. This is not business as usual. 
By God's mercy, the faith may continue to flourish. It's flourishing in the global south. It's flourishing in China. But barring a dramatic reversal of current trends, in a generation or two, the church could all but disappear as a significant cultural force in Europe and North America. Now again, to make clear, I mean the church is an institution, not pockets of believers. God's going to build his church. But we have this idea that it's always been growth. That Christianity started and it's always spread and it's always grown and it's always increased. And that's not true. There's been periods of great decline. In fact, you can see in the Bible times of spiritual vitality and times where all the people turned away from God. Where he had to send prophets. Because God was like, hey, everybody. And we see it. We see it throughout history. You can see it in the dark ages. The church may continue. It will continue to grow in the world, but it, has be, it may become non-existent in the West. The breakdown of the natural family, the loss of traditional moral values, the fragmenting of communities. We're troubled by these developments, but we believe they're irreversible. That they didn't infl- reflect anything fundamentally wrong with our approach to faith. That our, our legislators, our, our leaders would fix it all. Here's another quote from an article. Our religious leaders told us that strengthening the levies of law and politics would keep the flood of secularism at bay. But today we see we've lost on every front. And the swift and relentless currents of secularism has overwhelmed our flimsy barrier. Hostile secular nihilism. This aggressive sense that there is no ultimate purpose and meaning. That there is no larger story in human history. It's won the day in our nation's government and the culture has turned powerfully against traditional Christians. Hello? We want to tell ourselves that this has been imposed by a liberal elite because we find the truth intolerable. And the truth is that the American people, either actively or passively, have approved. So why am I saying all this? Because I love the church. Because I have a burden for souls. Because what we're doing is not working. And if you think it is, at best you are naive and at worst you are delusional. But I became a pastor because God's called me to love people enough to preach the truth to them. To preach boldly with unwavering commitment, but to do so respectfully from a place of humility, from a recognition and appreciation for God's grace in my own life. We are called to live lives marked by humility and service. I care about people. I care about all people. I favor broken people. Because I was a broken person. Not just a little broken, but really, really broken. And I'll tell you, man, the way I see some Christians approach their ministry... I would have ran away. Because all people are created in the image of God, whether they recognize that truth or not. Let us arise then at last, for the scripture stirs us, saying, now is the hour for us to rise from our sleep, Romans 13, 11. This is a wake-up call. 
to all of us. Again, this is a wake-up call. It's not about our mandate to be culture changers, to win the world for Christ. That much is clear. It's about our methods. Not only have they become unbiblical, but they're holy and effective. Please don't listen to this sermon and go back to business as usual if you care about the gospel. Because here's the thing. I don't think we're mean-spirited. I don't think we're malicious. We can be, but I don't think that that's what's driving all of this. You know what I think it is? I think we're afraid. I think we see Christian traditional values under attack and we're just afraid. But when people are afraid, the enemy spiritually, not your neighbor that you argue with, not that enemy. Spiritually, the the enemy already has weakened our position. Because when people get afraid, they become emotional and irrational. Anger is tied to fear. I get it, man. I understand. I do. I'm right there with you. But God isn't afraid. He's not surprised that lost people don't live for Jesus. But you better believe he expects his church to live for Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. The church has been in places like this before. The first centuries of Christianity, the early church survived and grew, thrived under Roman persecution after the collapse of the entire empire in the West. In the Dark Ages, there were Christians who withdrew into communities who would then impact the world for Christ. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying to physically withdraw from society, but I'm saying spiritually we need to take a step back. We need to look at our own community, our own family. Are we living out the biblical mandate here in this church? Are we making and becoming disciples? Because before we think about converting the world, are we being converted into people who follow Jesus with our lives? You see, saints of today need to learn from the example of saints in the past. Because this isn't just about our survival. If we're going to be for the world as Christ meant us to be, we're going to have to spend more time away from the world in deep prayer and in substantial spiritual training. Just as Jesus himself retreated to the desert to pray before ministering to the people. We can't give to the world what we don't have. If the Hebrews had been assimilated into the culture of Babylon, it would have ceased being the light to the world. And so it is with the church. So the reality of our situation is alarming. It's alarming. But here's the thing. You and I don't have the luxury of doom and gloom hysteria. Because there's a hidden blessing in this crisis. If we will open our eyes to it. Just as God used the chastisement in the Old Testament to call his people back to himself... He may be delivering a judgment onto his church to a people that have grown cold from selfishness and hedonism and materialism and the coming storm may be the means through which God delivers us. In my devotion this past week I read this. A missionary is someone in whom the Holy Spirit because it's only the Holy Spirit has brought the realization you are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6.19 
To say I am not my own is to have reached a high point in my spiritual stature. The true nature of, of that life is an actual everyday confusion is evidenced by the deliberate giving up of myself to another person through a sovereign decision, and that person is Jesus Christ. So who are you really giving yourself up to? Jesus calls us to a spiritual battle. And yes, in a sense, that's to fight. But it's to fight with him. To battle sin and not sinners. And our own sin first. Before you go around battling everybody else's sin, try, try battling your own. And we're, we're called into battle according to his teaching. His guidelines. His mandate. His example. You see, we don't wage war the way the world wages war. In fact, the very word war and battle has caused us confusion because our war is spiritual. Our war is against the enemy of the age, not the people he's trying to keep condemned. Our primary spiritual battle should be in our own lives. Jesus doesn't need us to fight for him. We are not defenders of the truth as much as we are ambassadors for the truth. We are invited into a ministry of reconciliation, not a ministry of destruction. He's already judged. We are called to preach the good news to the spiritually poor and blind. Bear with me. It's, I'm getting to the end here. I know it's hot. Maybe our real call to arms needs to be that we need to put down our weapon, weapons. To retreat from the battle momentarily to participate with Christ who's already won the war. Jesus didn't come to overthrow tyrannical governments. He came to change human hearts. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Because I know we're going to say, but you don't understand. Everybody's against me. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But... In other words, instead of those things, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Maintain your integrity so that you can't be put down for the way you live. If you don't sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, stop. Do nothing else because your motives are wrong. If you don't sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, you can't do anything else. Don't worry about your ministry that you're going to do. Because you haven't done your own ministry with your heart and God. Because when you do that, when you sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, when you love Jesus with everything in you, people will ask you about the hope that you have. People will want the hope that you have. And then you can tell them about who you have. I love my mother-in-law. She's downstairs. I'm making fun of her virtually. 
She has such a heart for her grandkids, and she's always trying to teach them about God and talk to them, and that's great. She should. I'm glad she does. And I know she has some real fear and concern for, her, for them. And so here's my advice to her and to all of us. You know what makes the difference? Yes, teach them. Yes, talk to them. It's essential. But you know what else? Shine. Shine the light of Jesus. Because when I met my in-laws, nothing they said made any sense to me. I didn't understand their politics, and I didn't understand their religion. And I was as far from God as anyone could be. I was so lost, and I expected them to criticize my bad choices and my lifestyle. But you know what had the biggest impact on me in my spiritual life? I watched their lives. I didn't understand their politics or their religion, but I understood their lives. I longed for the peace and the consistency and the faith they had before I could express that. I knew there was something. That's the light of Christ. There was something different about the way they conducted themselves. About their quiet faithfulness. It was attractive and beautiful and it opened my heart to the truth of the gospel. So here's my advice. Engage in dialogue. Vote. Stand up for, for Christian values. All that stuff. Teach. Talk. But dear God, shine. Get your own house in order. We're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect. But some of us aren't even trying. And most importantly, be prayerful. You worried about the next generation? Pray for them. Pray for opportunities to engage them. If you put people down, put them down on your prayer list. Know the word. Pray. Live out your faith. Love radically. Shine for Jesus. We're called to maintain and consider. I'm sorry, we're called to maintain a consistent witness. To change the world. And it is not the method, but the mandate that we have failed at. Is the worship team coming up before or after communion? Before? So you guys can make your way up then. It is not the mandate, but the method we failed at. We need to go home and consider our own spiritual condition. We need to begin in our lives, our own lives. Our homes, our families, our churches. We need to consider what it is we're supposed to be exporting. How can we do as Jesus called us to bear witness to the truth when we don't live with that truth as the center of our own lives? Yes, we are called to shape and reform culture. Yes, we are called to redeem communities. But that is as an overflow of our spiritual commitment to Jesus. So if your biblical hermeneutic, which is just a method, of, a method of interpreting, if your biblical hermeneutic causes you to be angry and arrogant and a divider, your information may or not be correct, but your application is absolutely not. And you've become not a warrior for Jesus, 
but a Pharisee. And those were among those who were in Scripture and are today the subject of Jesus' sharpest rebuke. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among them, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, a river reaches places that its source never knows. And Jesus said, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If we receive the fullness of Christ, we can't stop the rivers of living water that will flow out of us. That will bless those even to the ends of the earth. So if Jesus himself lived his life full of grace and truth, perhaps we ought to do the same. Shine for Jesus, church. That's what's going to make the difference. Father, we thank you for this word. It hurts. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us want to push back a little bit. And God, I, I pray that anything that's my opinion, that's, that's, Lord, let that quickly be forgotten, but your truth that biblical truth that the Holy Spirit is dealing with us all with, let us consider those things. So Father, as we, as we worship now and then as we transition to closing communion, be with us and help us even now as we prepare our hearts for communion, as Paul says, to examine ourselves. We don't want to play church. You didn't call us primarily to be cultural warriors. Again, we're not at war with people, God. We're at war for people. Give us a heart like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Worship team starts to play. Um, I'm going to have Jeff and Michelle pass the elements out. And just again, take a little time prayerfully, quietly. Do your business with Jesus. If you're here and you, you've never put your trust and faith in Him, you've never surrendered to Him, you're, you know, you're here and you've maybe been marginally Christian and you... Just ask the Lord to break your heart, to bring the truth, to make it real to you. Don't like Pilate stand and ask the question, what is truth, when Jesus stands before you. And if you've put your trust and faith in Jesus, but you just continue to be dragged away into the things of the world, renew that commitment now. Lord, help us to be a place filled with people who are radically committed to intimacy with Jesus. I want the whole world to change. You want the whole world to change. But only you have the power to change hearts. Only you have the power to create lasting change in the hearts of men and women. 
And Father, you use us. You call us to be your ambassadors to the ministry of reconciliation. Father, let us begin in our own hearts. Lord Jesus, have your way in this place. First Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul begins by saying, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We have no, no uh, we have no business asking people to follow our example unless we're following the example of Jesus. Paul writes in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please stand as we close together. At the cross, at the cross, 
where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I'm happy. Because he lives, yes, I can face tomorrow. Because he Confess. 
that Jesus Christ, He is Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we just lift you up in this place, God, that you would put us in a place that we could learn, that we could sit at your feet, God, and just learn all about what we're doing wrong, God, and how in our love for you, we've misplaced our, our faith, God, how we've misplaced our power. God, there is nothing without you. God, as we battle against the principalities and the powers, God, help us not to battle against the people you love. God, help us see them through your eyes. Love them with your heart. Help them with your hands. Father, there is just, there's so much that we need to change, God. And we ask that today that the things we've learned, God, that you use them and plant them and help us to change. And God, a real transformation, God, change us from the inside out. That when people look at us, God, we just shine for you. We love you, Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen.